This episode is brought to you by your editing alternative, a customized proofreading and editing service for academic papers in the humanities and social sciences. To learn more or to get free quotes, visit their website at youreditingalternative.com. This episode is also brought to you by our wonderful patrons. If you enjoy the Coffee and Cocktails podcast, make sure to like, subscribe, and become a patron for as little as one pound per month. By supporting the show, you get access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, panels, workshops, free merchandise, and much more. Just head over to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast and subscribe today. Otherwise, we'd like to give a shout out to our newest patron, Axel B. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the 32nd episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. This month for our Controversies and Contraband series, we have the pleasure of talking with consulting anthropologist and founder of Culture Contact, Helith Ravenholm, who will be discussing with me today the issues surrounding cancel, also known as call-out culture. Thank you for joining us. Hi, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here and it's a, it's a very interesting topic. Oh, great. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you were having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Helith, would you like to start? I am having, and it says, it says mojito and all kinds of things on top. Actually, I'm showing it to the wrong thing. Oh, okay. You can, yeah, there we go. Those on Patreon, you can see yeah. a drink. Yep. There we go. Uh, I always miss the camera somehow. It's just the silliest thing. Now, it's actually um, remainders of a smoothie. So this is, it, well, let's call it a mocktail, given that it's a mocktail. cocktails in, in coffee and cocktails. Yes. No alcohol, um, given my IBS yesterday. But right. yeah, no, definitely full full of, of, um, of vitamins. And it's actually... Um, it's actually the um, innocent smoothie and um, some of oh, their I stuff. Love and all the smoothie. I love innocent oh. smoothie. Anyone who doesn't know about innocent smoothie, you can get them in the UK. They are just the best smoothies ever, 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 ever. We ever. can get them in France, and that made me really, really happy. I don't blame you. Don't blame you. Well, I was going to say nope. so today we are talking about cancel culture. And with a topic like this, it is bound to ruffle some feathers. Which is why I felt like as anthropologists, I think it's important to discuss the development of this phenomenon and the effects that it could have on individuals in society. So if we could just start off with the first question, um, why do you consider call out and cancer culture to be, if not the same, interchangeable and intrinsically linked? Okay, so... Oh, um to, to introduce myself, I started from the from the archaeology and anthropology, the archaeology to understand what we did and anthropology why we did it, and that has actually continued throughout my um, fieldwork and throughout my consultation. I consult on a lot of matters, including diversity, and obviously I am I'm um, ethnically Eurasian a cocktail like my drink, <laughs> and I'm also a member of LGBT minority. I consider myself both bisexual and lesbian, and um, I've been with my partner, same-sex partner, for we've just started year sixteen now, so it's wow, been quite a while. Congratulations, sixteen years! Thank you. It was actually an anniversary literally this month. Oh, wonderful! And what's actually interesting about being LGBT and being a minority? I, I pass for a white woman very mm. easily for all the fact that I've got some Asian background as well. Is that if you do not seem like, you know, X, Y, Z, people try to put you in a box. Mm. And when they try to put you in a box, 
the box usually means and can talk about, feel about, etc., etc., has experience of X, Y, Z. Now, we as anthropologists know that's not the case. Right. Human experience is so diverse. So, so, so absolutely diverse. An individual as and well, right? Absolutely. So for me, there's a personal component that I actually started noticing. But at the same time, obviously, as somebody who consults on diversity issues, I have noticed a lot of people, especially trans people of late, who actually feel terrified of call out and cancel culture. Because um, there's, and we will get to that later on, a lot about call out and cancel culture is actually about virtue signaling. Okay. And that usually comes from a specific type of person. Usually, in my experience, and I think other people's experiences, this is usually young millennial Gen Z or white women who have perspectives about what others should, should be like. And um, even in trans community, for instance, partially because of the pressure that the trans people are under, and they are under huge amount of pressure. I mean, even if you just look at the numbers of assaults, of, of deaths, in just the US, let alone anywhere else, of trans women, particularly, especially black trans women, brown trans women, trans women. This is this is a huge pressure. I mean, mm. imagine walking down the street and not knowing if you're going to get to your door. I think yeah. there was a murder in Birmingham not long ago of a trans woman, literally Birmingham, on Alabama, doorstep. or Birmingham, UK. Which which one are we talking? Birmingham, about? UK. Okay, <laughs> this is closer. Yes, yeah, is much closer than we think sometimes. Because in Europe, we actually tend to think in UK. If you want, we tend to think that. These are distant things, you know, these, mm, are, these are very distant yeah. things. But this is the an thing American about othering is rather than a, a, an EU yes. UK one. Yeah. But in reality, othering is everywhere. Right. Othering is everywhere and it includes everybody. So there's a lot of pressure to conform to stereotypes. And this was in part how I actually got to even thinking and discussing cancel and call out culture. And to actually now answer the question, why do I see them to be at the very least intrinsically linked, if not the same thing. Because you can't have one without the other. Okay. If we actually consider call-out culture, right? Call-out culture is about calling attention or potentially starting, I would actually almost say a fight in a lot of ways online. You will see that this actually really With keyboard does warriors, happen. It does seem to be quite the thing. Yeah, it is. it can get quite nasty. And basically, you've got that. And on the other hand, what are you going to have from that once it's happened? Very often, it's not about change. It's not about calling attention to potential change. It's about trying to lead to cancellation of someone. So this is why I consider the two of them. And I'm not the only one. I have seen other people actually theorize that they are very, very linked. Obviously, I didn't include all the hundreds of articles. I'm sorry about that. But a good Google search is, is, is your friend in that type of situation. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of worry about where this is actually leading. And from people who, for instance, felt that uh, that pullout culture could be used for good, I think there's a lot of concern about where this is actually going to end up, where, where we're going with this. Because to a certain extent, it's very easy to be nasty on the Internet. Sure, sure. Um, which sort of leads me to my next question. What is call-out culture's overall purpose? Ah, that depends on who you ask. And that's without going into debate on who likes it and who supports it and who doesn't, because obviously that, that can just go crazy. That definitely features um, 
because coiled culture has become politicized on both the left and the right side of the usual political spectrum, but I want to look right now, I'd like to look at it outside of that. So as it's socially perceived, call out and cancel culture or cancel culture, you want to call it slash cancel culture, whatever you want to call it, is about social power. It is, shall we say, advertised as a way for people to use, especially social media platforms, but also conventional media to challenge, so call out, which has both the connotations of a fight and political attention to it, as I said, um, if you think about it, um, things that these people think are not right. And obviously that in itself, if you think about it, this is someone's opinion. This is someone's opinion. And that can be precious or it can be really, really bad. And that is why it's often portrayed as ultimately good and useful, because theoretically you can call attention to things that are wrong, that are systemically wrong, that, you know, someone had happened to them and obviously, you know, they need help. So obviously the problem is its counterpart, and I really do honestly feel its next logical step is cancelling, which is a sim symbolic or actual exclusion of a person from society. So... Well, people generally claim call-out culture is about justice. It definitely has a darker side, even at the first glance. And that's what we shall say is the official social line. From an anthropological perspective, though, call-out culture is, again, still about social power, but it can definitely be defined as crowd justice about, uh, above everything else. It's more about that than, than anything else, as far as I'm concerned. The aim is very clearly to go against someone or something and enforce what a person, and there's usually somebody, a specific person who starts what is then an internet landslide, and their compatriots believe is right, just, or moral. And that outside of the bounds of normal law investigation and due process, because they're doing this as a sideline, as well as outside recognized, sought after, and expected privacy rules. And that in itself creates problems. There's a reason why we have justice systems and why they're based on procedure. Without it, we get bogged down in hearsay, perception, and belief versus trying to figure out what someone actually did, whether and how that is to be considered problematic, and what to do next. And this, of course, is, as well as actual examples of how cancel and cold culture use generally goes against the convention of human rights. I mean, if I actually use examples and just let's consider doxing as the ultimate extreme version of and could you how explain far it's what doxing go. is for those who aren't familiar? Okay, doxing is okay. I'm going to just give you an example. So, so I'm really angry with you now. So you say, damn, I'm going to, I'm going to like, really oh, mess no. you up. <laughs> <laughs> I do. no, don't worry about it. <laughs> and basically, everybody's got information. I mean, for me, for instance, you know, and then we're going to get a cat just in a second. I think she's just stretching and coming down. <laughs> um, she's our friend. She's our French cat. We found her on a windowsill in a trash oh. bag. So that wasn't nice, but she's happy now. So basically, coming back to what I was saying, um, so for me, for instance, because of how the French use private information for people who have businesses, it is incredibly easy to actually find information online. I mean, you can literally just Google me afterwards and actually realize how easy it is, especially because I work from home. And obviously, even without that, I can dig up your information. I can dig up anybody's information. And once you've done that, as much as you have, you put it into a document and you put it online. And as you can imagine, this, this is horrible. This isn't just... We're constantly arguing whether or not social media and surveillance and whatnot is actually violating our privacy. But now consider this. If we're arguing that privacy is something secret, as and obviously we have lots of legal precedent for how and why, especially in rights of minorities, 
the idea that you can then just say, oh, okay, fine, I'm really, I'm really pissed off with it with Anne and I'm going to find her information. I'm going to make it available, including where you live, who your mm. children are. I mean, that is terrifying. That is yeah. terrifying. And that should be considered a crime. That should be considered a crime. So that's yeah. doxing. Okay. <laughs> All the documents okay. available. Gosh. So, I mean, the next it's question, nice. I, and it isn't nice, but I think... Um, there, I, I do feel like, you know, in one of the articles you sent me to sort of like prepare for this uh, show, um, it was written by a trans author and the trans author had said, um, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And oh, the yes, author absolutely. was talking about uh, the idea of call out and cancel culture in relation to a particular mm -hmm. story, which we'll get to in a second. Um, mm -hmm. With that in mind, along that vein... What are the positive and that negative aspects of call out and cancel culture? This is where it gets difficult, as far as I'm concerned, mm. as an anthropologist and as a person. This is, this is where it gets difficult, and this is where more most of the arguments. This is where it gets controversial, right? Yeah, <laughs> this is gonna get controversial. So, to me, I'm not really sure. I would dare say that call out and cancel culture, especially as they are now, have positive effects. Because while I do truly understand what people think they're doing or what they're trying to do, and I, I've got the greatest respect for that, you know, there's, there's so much wrong with the systems and we do need to iron that out. And I inspect everybody who's trying to do that. I have a lot of trouble reconciling the idea that something can still be seen as having positive aspects or positive effects if it doesn't address the problem in a system that it claims exist, which which do, I, I think we all know the system isn't perfect, that there's a lot of work to be done, but co-op and cancel culture, while aiming at systemic change, firstly, it self-defeats immediately, right? By claiming that the system's too broken, can never be changed, the only solution is cancelling and calling out, which is basically a radicalization and cultism motif. You, you will find that in radicalization and cultism, whatever you do. So would you and say it's a form of, sorry, not to cut you off, but would you say it's a form no, no, of, um, sort of being, again, the word's escaping me right now, but um, I guess an extreme example would be like Stalinism or um, being sort of like you a dictator and preventing you from having it, an alternative viewpoint is, from the establishment or the new established view. It's pretty rigid. It's pretty okay. rigid. I mean, maybe and that's quite extreme, but, you know, it, it you wonder. <laughs> the, the thing that bothers me is that it's actually doing the kind of we are the only solution while at the same time also not addressing the problems within the call-out culture itself. I mean, we'll, we'll get to that, you know. Um, if you think about it, at the same time, there are so many trying to suggest it should, be, there, it should be more about trying to call attention to problems, shift how we perceive things, but the effects, desired effects, are generally online bullying and claiming lack of success because a person, for example, a celebrity who did something stupid didn't lose their job. I mean, how is this a lack of success? Because while we discuss the difficulties of ex-cons and their rehabilitation, for often worse crimes than saying something stupid, you, you're just going to turn around and say, this doesn't apply to everybody, you know? I mean, everybody says stupid things. I'm pretty sure I say stupid things. But human rights, and this is where we get to why I find that cancel, cancel and quote culture are very problematic for human rights. That means being ensured the possibility of fair trial, among other things, as well as work, shelter, food. And, you know, you, you notice that work is kind of this... This key thing, right? It's key thing. You can't have shelter and food without work. 
uh, dignity as well, all those things that are connected to being left alone, being able to work. And if you think about it, so basically I say something that is silly and I should now just lose my career. This isn't, this shouldn't be a goal. This isn't about fixing the problem. It's just taking it out on someone. Hmm. So I would suggest that maybe we should consider, don't do that. That's bad. <laughs> She's playing with that. Just the cat. A, yeah, it's just a cat. She, she's playing with a... No, don't, don't do that. Seriously. She has discovered that we have the, um, the iron and uh, she wants to play with it. It's heavy. And if it falls on her yeah, toe, she's not going to be good. <laughs> um, so basically, what I would um, suggest is that maybe we should consider what conversation exists about systemic problems or suggestions for, for, for change to be a tangent, a side effect. Because really, uh, whatever call-out culture could have been, it's fallen foul of what humans unfortunately tend to do best. It's become a tribalist groupthink structure through which people can bully others, sometimes extensively and with dreadful consequences, as we'll see when we get to the uh, Isabel Fall case. Another problem also is that if you consider that call-out and cancel culture is about group behavior in the sense of trying to enforce ideas and beliefs and perceptions, then and this, is, this has become true for extreme groups like radical feminists and insults and supremacists of all kind who have tapped into it in some way. Anything can pass for behavior we now all need to adopt. This is basically where you get back to the whole the comment about Stalinism. Mm. There is no diversity. Diversity becomes an enemy. Um, discourse becomes an enemy. I've read articles on the theme, including by people of color and of the LGBT, whom world culture often proclaims to protect on the left, on the left side of the political spectrum. And experience, as we know, as anthropologists, is heterogeneous. But, uh, but basically, with, with coil culture, it becomes homogenous. The idea is mm. assumptions are made about who should be saying or thinking what on the basis of color or assumed sex and gender and sexual orientation. And it's often about virtue signaling by young straight white women. As I mentioned before, please leave that alone. <laughs> Not you, the cat. <laughs> she's really, she's really, she's very young. So basically me sitting on Zoom is just, no, you're playing with someone else, mom. <laughs> yes. So, um, for example, as I said, I'm, I'm ethnically racially mixed. I pass for white. I pass for significantly younger than I am. I'm just not my 40s. And I pass for straight because to a lot of people, I don't look like a lesbian. And I am technically married to a woman. It's not exactly. It's not just on my face. And apparently we're going to now have, I'm having like one disaster after the other because apparently we need the battery. I think the battery of, of this is dying. Okie dokie. It's, the computer battery is new, but apparently it's not. That's okay. So I, I'm wondering. Yeah, it, it's fun. So basically, yeah, what does the lesbian look like, right? I'm married to a woman mm. it's not written on my face. So there's a question for listeners. What does a lesbian look like? How do we have sex? What do we wear? How do ethnically and racially makes people look how do we present and all and, and these including personal questions because it's kind of like oh my god yes business. <laughs> but all none these of your are business going to be, i know all these are going to be experiences that are unique to a person obviously and in cool out cultures homogeneity that's not the case and uh, seriously even that the how how do how do lesbians have sex what is the prescribed way if you're really a lesbian? And we, my wife and I laugh about that a lot. And we usually come across vehement claims about what real lesbians are like, especially um, 
when those are made as obviously usually young political lesbians, so women who claim to be queer for ideological grounds, I mean, this becomes really ridiculous. It's like, how do you, what, who are you to determine how I should have sex or how I should dress? So for me, it's becoming increasingly difficult to consider call out and cancel cultures having any real positive aspects. It's like with a medical procedure, if you want, or, or a car. Would you allow a doctor to subject you to a procedure that has an unreasonably high chance of going wrong, having really bad side effects? Or would you drive a car that crashes half the time? Now, if the answer is no, that's how I'm more and more seeing cancel culture and call-out culture, especially the more I talk to and consult about minorities within minorities who live at an intersection. So many things that can be perceived to be wrong, right? So these people and myself included live with the knowledge that they do not fit, that the assumptions are being made about them, that there exists a chance that someone will try to put them in the box they created for them, that if things go really wrong, maybe if we question things too loudly, regardless of being the group that's supposed to profit from that, risking being harassed, risking being threatened, bullied, and even have our privacy exposed on the internet, which, as I said before, is called doxing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot to process, but I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. um, and and there's some other elements we'll get to in a, in a few minutes. But um, mm -hmm. I think I think the idea of of being in a box is is quite interesting. Um, not necessarily interesting, good, but just more like in terms of like an observation of um, you know the perceptions that we have. And mm -hmm. almost like if you don't, I, I do think that the majority of us just want a quiet life. I, I will be honest. I think exactly. we just want a quiet life, do our thing, live our life. And thank you very much. And I think that um, cancel culture doesn't allow you to have a quiet life. It's almost like if you're no. not loud and you're not throwing things verbally, whatever, mm -hmm. that there's almost something wrong with you. And I think a lot of times, when I see these comments, I think, oh my gosh, like what's wrong with that person? Like what <laughs> happened to them that made them so, so angry? Hate. Like they need to go and yes. see somebody and, and get some help. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah. um, and I, I really, really don't want to um, irritate any of my listeners, but I'm going to mention something. <laughs> Please give me the benefit of the doubt here because I'm, I'm just, I, mean, I picked a controversial topic. What can I say? So there was a podcast that I listened to. I'm not going to name the name of the podcast, um, but they were talking about the controversial um, aspects of Dr. Seuss. Now, I, didn't, I knew that there was some bad stuff related to him, but I grew up with the stories as kids. I didn't read any of his political content and nothing. And the individuals who were talking about Dr. Seuss had already made their decision before they even came onto the show that anything and everything by Dr. Seuss was a no-go. He's a bad man. And, I'm and that was the thing. All of them had already made a decision before they came into the room about what was going to be their decision. Because at the end of the day, mm -hmm. they had to decide whether they were willing to accept some of the work that he created as literary genius or some of the work as, or basically, he's either all good or all bad, okay? If you know the show, yeah. congratulations. So they came onto the show, and they already had made their decision, which I, I think as an anthropologist, that already makes me a little grumpy, because we're all about <laughs> trying to be objective, or at least to the very best of our degree, just, just listen. And um, anyway, cut a long story short, what transpired through that podcast is I learned that they didn't like his political views, which was completely understandable. Um, I would never mm -hmm. deliberately show um, 
that sort of material to my child. But when I'm reading The Cat in the Hat, I don't sit there and think, wow, the cat is such a misogynist. I just think it's a cartoon. <laughs> so, of course, I'm going to read The Cat in the Hat to my kid because it's I'm reading it for the literary content, not for the individual. Now, interestingly, um, what didn't come up in this show is Disney. Ah, yes. Disney Plus, right? Ah, yes. um, and at Disney, and again, I didn't prepare a lot of research on this before we did the recording, but from what I've been informed is that he was, uh, there were rumors that he was uh, possibly a Nazi sympathizer. Whether he was or not is irrelevant, but there were stories um, that he was quite racist Mm -hmm. and that there are individuals who have made the decision not to have anything to do with Disney, but a lot of people do want to be involved with Disney. So in my mind, I was like, okay, so you're willing to put money towards Disney Plus and watch your mm-hmm. shows and Pixar because Pixar's now bought out by Disney. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're going to completely eradicate children's literature, but you're okay with this giant megalith of an institution that already has some yeah. questionable aspects related to it anyway. And I guess from my standpoint, it was like, how can you say one thing and be vehemently like opposed to it? And anybody who says otherwise is a terrible person but then mm-hmm. potentially be quite supportive of something else that's equally as bad, at least in terms of its origin, in terms of the creator, right? And mm-hmm. and yet somehow be able to remove yourself from that. It, it just seems like there's a massive contradiction there, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, one of the problems, I mean, I completely agree with you. I think these are these are huge questions. And honestly, I would say this. I don't think we can actually really address them. No, 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 right now, you know, like the no, of universe. We are going to solve everything. But, <coughs> sorry, I'm, I'm swallowing pulp wrong, I think. Because um, there's pulp. There's a lot of pulp in the smoothies. Um, uh, basically, one of the biggest problems is that we are looking at past where... I mean, you know, there was so there has always been so much wrong, you know. Racism has existed, misogyny has existed, and so on and so on. And we could go on. And frankly said, it still exists. And in a lot of ways, things aren't perfect. But what's actually odd to me as an anthropologist is the inability to see the past as something we can learn from. Because fine, you can't change the past. I mean, this is just not currently physically possible if there is any any astrophysicist or whoever listening wants to send me right and say no in 10 years we will be able to i mean you know i would love to discuss that but until we have that possibility and even then you should be asking yourself is that ethical you know how 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 do we know what that would do for instance that's completely sci-fi right um the only thing we can really truly do right now is to learn from this. And we can take the bad and we can take the good and we have to comprehend that what passed for okay or was considered good may not be the same now. And we can, I think, you know, with, with regards to our complete lack of sanity or possible remains of sanity, whichever path you choose, take little bits of past and say okay fine this was actually good or this was at least inoffensive and i think this is the way to keep sanity this is what i do it doesn't make anything less or more right it just means that i'm aware of 
where issues, systemic issues, for instance, come from and what I can do now to make today and the future better. But it doesn't mean that I should be bogged down with the fact that yesterday was so horrible because, yes, okay, it's happened. We have to look at today and tomorrow. To me, that's the more important thing. Yeah, interesting. It's probably not perfect. <laughs> no, no, of course. And and like I said, I, I you know, I mentioned the Disney thing because I just think that, you know, if we start saying no to everything, then we have nothing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that that could be its whole a whole separate conversation. But um if we could just kind of get back to who who decides basically, mm. just to say that, who decides what you should or shouldn't have. And that bothers me yeah. quite a lot because there is a totalitarianism yeah. of thought there. Absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, go back to it. <laughs> no, so then, speaking of totalitarian of thought, uh, what role has Twitter and other social media platforms like Reddit played in the development of cancel culture? And I, you've already provided some examples, but if there's any more that come to mind, you know, feel free to share. Okay. Um, above all, Twitter and Reddit and also other private, often more extreme platforms help create echo chambers. Now, what is an echo chamber? Echo chamber is... Say, for instance, if, if anthropologists band up together and they're kind of like, we are only thinking, I don't know, along Gertz's lines. I mean, I, I draw a lot of work from Gertz, so Gertz is always on my mind. So, you know, like, Random, let's just say okay. we're all thinking Gertz. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you're not, you got, there you go. You know, you're not allowed to be in my group if you do not think <laughs> the way I do. I mean, this is already where it is. It's self-policing. And say, for instance, we're all talking about Gertz and we're talking about how how everything in the world is just, you know, related to how Gertz thought and we don't bring in, I don't know, Mary Douglas or whatever. That's technically an echo chamber. An echo chamber is a place where people who are like-minded meet without any further input. So basically, these platforms help create these echo chambers. And fine, this isn't new. This has happened before, you know, in the village, in the village square. It happened in the pub. It happened at the village well. Um, and this is in a way just an extension. So maybe we shouldn't look for concrete instances of specific cases. For example, when someone cancelled someone, right? But how these echo chambers feature online, because to a certain extent that is in a way far more, far more important. Like QAnon, for instance, has been kicked off platforms, both for spreading disinformation for incitement to violence and threats. And if you actually look to them, they have a specific belief. Everybody outside is out there, right? And questioning the dogma is considered problematic. Now, the same is true for certain radical men's groups, as well as trans-exclusionary radical feminists. In all these cases, people who share a conviction band up, their information goes back and forth solely between group members and it targets an other of choice. Um, it can be trans women, it can be LGBT in general, it can be women or men, and it can be, shall we say, you know, non-believers to whatever you believe. This could be social or religious or conspiracist. The effect's always the same. It can include on top of what still falls under call-out and cancel culture, like we see with the article on the Asian men's rights group or with the terms, so trans-exclusionary feminists, violent behaviors and bullying. And we go back to doxing. Rape threats, death and rape threats, for instance, are very, very common. We tend not to see these acts as connected to call-out culture, which actually interests me, um, because very often they don't fall in well with the narrative that quote culture is either solely left-based or for that matter in some way good 
So the truth is that this is merely an extension of similar group behaviors that we can find throughout history on, onto the internet, where it's easy, even considered fun and perhaps cathartic to go after someone within the bounds of relative anonymous um, posts and so relative anonymity in general, relative because ultimately if people really dig, they can probably find you, you know, but th there's this feeling of, oh, I can... I can go after someone. There are people who literally, it's like you were saying about Twitter, there are people who are so angry. And in a way, um, I think Twitter, partially because you're calling in the void and partially because the anonymity has become a very quick lash out space, even more than it's actually a discussion space. I mean, Reddit, for instance, is more likely to be a discussion space, whereas Twitter really serves the lash out. So, what we should be considering, what we should be focusing on is how the echo chambers create the single true narrative, right? So single if you want social truth. And that thinking is an integral part of how call-out cancel culture works in practice, whatever people might believe it could have done otherwise. So really the examples are all over the internet. They're multiplying as we say, you know, as just what we say the factions do. So in a way we're starting to look at everybody has their own personal truth. And nothing else is true. <clears throat> yeah. And it's like this absolutist approach to it. Mm, interesting. Uh, let's talk about, and I, I mean, the absolutism we'll definitely get into in a second. Um, but let's uh, <laughs> talk about the story Attack Helicopter by Isabel Fall. If you could um, tell us briefly, you know, what the story is about and why it was so controversial. Now, the sad thing is I never managed to actually get to it. I presume that there It was are... taken off offline, wasn't it? Yeah. So, it was taken yeah. off at the author's request. Yes. Um, if you read the article, listeners, <laughs> you Yeah, can, and we'll have that in the show notes on our website, it. so... Exactly. So, um, this, this is, in a way, an extreme case of how... I think it's actually called... Um, how Twitter can ruin a life. If I and I think the original story title was called I Sexually Identify as an Attack Helicopter, which was based exactly. off a meme that was supposedly anti-trans, yes. and then the author decided to reappropriate it for the better, exactly. I would assume. Now, oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Now, I never actually managed to read it, which I'm actually quite sad about. I could probably find... You know, should we say pirated copies? But I just don't think that's that's ethical, to be honest. Yeah. So what I know, I know from the articles. And fine. Um, before we get into anything, I would actually ask the listeners to read up on surrealism. Okay. Because ultimately, the attack helicopter story is about surrealism. It's sci-fi and surrealism. And one of great examples of surrealism is actually Kafka. <laughs> I don't know okay. if anybody if anybody's read Kafka. I, I did very, very briefly in high school. And I often think that if Kafka wrote today, he'd be called out and cancelled. <laughs> he was a surrealist and um, full story is technically very similar. It's surrealist sci-fi exploration of human condition, particularly weaponization of gender and sexual orientation. Now, the meme definitely existed and it was anti-trans. It was anti-trans because it was trying to and frankly said, not just anti-trans, I'd say in general, uh, anti-LGBT. And the, the point had been to try to claim that, in a way, again, narrativism, only, there's only one truth, you know, there's only one truth about sex and gender and everybody else's, and for LGBT, this is very important, can't possibly exist, right? Now, 
obviously the internet is full of this type of this type of material so it's very rare in a way at least from what i know for people to actually take it and explore it from a different perspective from for instance um false false perspective uh, that is i i always actually felt it was pretty brilliant uh, the better thing is that we discuss weaponization of gender and sexual orientation a lot if you think about it we discuss it in in um anthropology we discuss it in feminism we discuss it in gender theory in general we discuss it in sociology and psychology so it's all over the place we talk about pros and cons of being male or female in our society very frequently in false case she was a trans woman at the start of her journey so that was for a lot of from what i know from my trans friends this is a very vulnerable fragile place especially if we consider the violence against trans people. And, and a lot she of was trying to step her toe into this new identity, wasn't exactly. it? By testing out the name, exactly. being very vague about where her background was from. And all that was mentioned was that she yeah. was born in 1988. And then there was, exactly. there was nothing else on purpose to just see, test on the purpose, waters, see what happened. Because she was protecting herself. She was protecting right. herself. And she was thinking about her identity a lot. Uh, she wrote the story. Um, and you know at first this, this story actually puts it in the context of ideology and state i mean you know she takes the idea of what if you could actually literally be weaponized you know what what would that do what would happen hey, look darling you need to let me talk <laughs> that's the cat she's not no, telling me i need to yeah. um, you know you can call me darling if no, you no, want. No, don't worry about that you know it's the cat. <laughs> no she's she's very intense she's very very intense so she gets touchy about long conversations but she has to she has to get used to it so um and at first yeah so so basically the story is literally taking a surrealist view surrealist sci-fi view it's like what happens if i'm weaponized and if you think about it for somebody who's trying to find themselves that is a very poignant point it's very deep and at first people actually quite liked it it seemed that it fits the narrative basically um but that was a narrative there there are several when you when you start looking at how people um, again reductionism and positivism right um when one person literally i think ended up saying what if this isn't an ally what is this isn't a trans person and they yeah. cast doubt they they sow doubt if you want in the minds of other people and that means that everybody else and that's confirmation bias that's actually a thing other people begin to be suspicious and paranoid well didn't they also want say like and it, it gets back to the idea of like you know mm -hmm. Um, I say Stalinist because it's just the thing that pops into my head. <laughs> but it's the idea that um, only a trans person can talk about trans things. And, you know, it, it's telling people mm -hmm. only you can do X, I think is what I'm trying to get at. As opposed Which is to, problematic. Yeah. Go, go, go for it. <laughs> well, because I think, um, you know, the little bits that I saw from the article that you sent me was that um, one of the main characters was an individual named Barb. Mm -hmm. And Barb, Barb's gender was defined as helicopter, which is this whole idea mm -hmm. of being weaponized. So it wasn't it was neither male mm -hmm. nor female. Now, because Isabel didn't have a background written about her, um, mm -hmm. cis women, interestingly, uh, were were saying um, that she was not qualified, and they hadn't even read the story. They yep. read the the title, associated it with the meme. Yep. 
Um, they didn't educate themselves. They didn't actually read about it, which I find highly problematic, but welcome to Twitter. Mm-hmm. And um, they started assuming a lot. And, you know, to assume makes an ass out of you and me. And it exactly. Sort of I was going to say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Uh, people began to be suspicious and paranoid. They claimed that this type of experience couldn't possibly be trans experience. And I'm going to actually, I'm going to call this out if we're calling things out. Because, uh, you know, there's a lot of trouble with the idea of who can have an experience. First of all, I mean, before the show, we actually talked about stepping into someone else's shoes. Um, comprehending human emotion, human experience, we can do it. This is normal. We can do it for animals. Animals can do it for, for each other. And it's it's normal. And trying to police who can understand something, who can live what kind of experience, let alone boxing, what kind of experience a person of a specific background can have can be you know, hugely problematic and hugely traumatic as well on top of it. Especially if you think about it, a lot of trans people don't necessarily, it's a procedure from what I understand from, from my friends. And we talk about that a lot. One of them is going to have surgery soon. And um, the discussion is very often about, well, how, how does this, how does this work? Right? This is, these are big decisions and you don't just wake up one day and say, you know, who cares? I'm going to, I'm going to go X, Y, Z. These are deep, deep personal decisions. And people come to them at different points of life through different pathways. And it is absolutely cruel, absolutely cruel to expect them to all have, you know, like, should we say a, a factor experience, right? Like, you know, A, B, C, and then at the end you're in, in a box. So this, I, it's just so difficult, especially if you consider that, uh, for instance, I do a lot of diversity, diversity discussions with clients. I'm not trans, but I'm going to talk about trans rights as well as I should, because somebody has to alert people to the fact that A, trans rights exist, B, trans rights exist because trans people are people, they're human rights, and C, you may not have a trans person currently available to actually stand up for it. And I think it's also cruel to expect that people who are minorities, or especially minorities in the intersection, for instance, a black trans woman, would now have to, on top of dealing with what they're dealing with through society, through through unacceptance and, and prejudice, now actually go and spend significant time telling others why they should be accepting. Mm. I mean, isn't it a job of an ally to try their best to educate themselves on how to help and then do it. I mean, that's, right. that's another thing that really bothers me with this. And what's really hurtful about poor fool is that she was proclaimed to be straight, a straight yeah. man. We're talking about a lot of assumptions and not thinking how this might actually, you know, first of all, consider you might be wrong, right? But there's no consideration of that when you group think. Because you right. must, by default, be right. The group is always right. And obviously, um, that excludes all the, all the variety, all the diversity in human experience, including trans experience. And obviously, that can have very real consequences on our psychology. And in, in the end, for full, the onslaught of negativity and bullying nearly cost her her life. It ruined her quest to find herself, possibly for good, though personally, I hope not. I hope that she can find herself, be herself as she wants to be regardless. But this was a very, very real case, which would have been very invisible had somebody not actually bothered to look her up and and talk to her. So, Well, and I think this is another really interesting point, because there was another article that you sent me that, um, you know, maybe we can talk about a tiny bit. 
Um, but basically the premise was uh, there was an individual who had posted something in response to, um, she's Chinese American and she was talking about, if my memory serves me correctly, um, some issues she had with the age, some members of the Asian male community who become quite radical. And she mm-hmm. felt like they, women, Asian women who were dating white men were somehow problematic because she should be quote unquote dating their own. And I think it led mm-hmm. into this discussion about how um, these, you know, nobody wakes up and is just angry, not unless they have a chemical imbalance. Yeah. So there has mm-hmm. to be a premise behind it, you know, and it, we come to find that these um, individuals who are part of this subreddit group um, basically were having a very hard time finding partners. And mm-hmm. they felt that their ethnicity, their race, was preventing that from happening as a result of social stereotypes, which is a terrible place to be. But the response mm-hmm. to that was to attack the women of their ethnicity mm-hmm. and say, you know, you should be dating your own because my life is miserable, is basically the sort of the premise that came out of it. And she made a really interesting point because this woman had been attacked by members of this community. Yeah. And um, it was terrible. They tried to contact her place of employment to get her Mm -hmm. fired. She ended up getting kicked off Twitter, which is just awful. And at the end of the day, she said, you know, one human being, you know, basically it's bad enough to get a mean email out of the blue. You know, that Mm -hmm. could ruin your week, especially because you're like, that was totally Mm -hmm. unsolicited. Yeah. She said, but the human brain is not capable of comprehending let alone processing yeah. thousands of negative horrible tweets messages yeah. emails yeah. it's impossible for the brain to handle and so in the case of Isabel Fall she ended up admitting mm-hmm. herself to a yeah. psychiatric institute because a she, and she did a good job there and B, she did a very good job there yeah and then she you know the alternative was that she was afraid she was going to kill herself and I think yeah. these are the things is that when we write, when we, when individuals write these messages, they don't realize it's almost like they forget it's going to a person. It's like they want it to go to a person, but they forget it's going to a human with feelings. And I, I think that that is problematic. Honestly, <clears throat> definitely. Absolutely. I honestly sometimes think that there are two types. And from what I have seen, I would say there is some basis to what I'm saying. There are people who... Yes, definitely, completely blank the fact that this is hate. This is a real human being. You know, they've got emotions. Mm. Um, they may excuse their actions when, you know, the end justifies the means, right? So basically, right. you know, whatever whatever I do, well, they are there for so, so much worse. And there are others, I think, I'd say, honestly, psychopaths who yeah. genuinely revel in the harm they can, they can actually cause genuinely revel in it and i think it's becoming easier to i I would almost say radicalize through these groups through echo chambers into almost what would pass for a psychopath i suppose that would be a sociopath i think um there used to be the division of, you know, who, who is naturally and who is, who is by, um, or whatever. But basically, it is, it's not my, it's not my, it's not my forte, but it's literally people who are becoming accustomed to the fact that anything can go their way and that they can cause pain and they can revel in it. And that yeah. is ultimately how we define psychopathia. So it's terrifying and i'm really glad i'm so glad that full actually took that step and took care of herself yeah because if you actually look 
even just amongst people who are bullied at work or children who are bullied at school, there are cases where people commit suicide. Yeah. There are cases. And it's awful. It's terrible. And now consider that this is something so huge as you trying to figure out a whole new identity, which may not end up being safe for you anyway. Yeah. And then you get this. This is terrifying. This Absolutely. is terrifying. Which sort of leads me to my last question, but I think we've really tapped into it already. How has call-out slash cancel culture become a form of absolutism? And do you think that cancel culture has the potential to contradict itself? Well, <laughs> it's actually a very good one. Um, firstly, the first contradiction is already... Can you still claim that you're doing something good if this is what's actually happening? I mean, this is mm. my, my biggest problem. Also, can you claim that call-out culture is serving diversity and social causes if people like Fall are being targeted? If this is being you know, used by, by groups of radicalized? And uh, to me, the absolutism is in what I call narrativism. So basically, you know, creating a narrative, a social narrative that you're following. And in this case, we're talking a rigid idea of what an experience should be. Um, and obviously, any diversity from that can be branded with suspicious, untrue, called out. And, you know, poor Fall, for instance, got called out and canceled in a very real way. If you think about it, her work, for all that, I, I think it actually won an award later on. Actually, a Hugo a, Award, different yeah. title. Yes. If you think about it, that's, like, that's an amazing... We constantly say how we do not have representation, right? We do not have the representation and we need more representation. Well, there it is. There is yeah. the representation of what nearly happened. This is terrifying if you start thinking from that perspective. And um, it's also an absolutism because there is no room for discussion. It's no, there's no room. It's not possible very often. <laughs> we'll see whether or not we get really, you know, <laughs> we get canceled um, for, for what we're doing right now. Basically, there's very little room it's, uh, or no room for discussion of the diversity or diversity of thought. And there is no room for discussion of bad bits of it. Narrative is... Um, the end justifies everything. In other countries, for instance, crowd justice like this costs lives. It, you know, for instance, consider, I think there were suspected vampirism cases in Malawi, for instance, that actually literally cost people lives through crowd justice um, or witchcraft or werewolfism in India or the WhatsApp messages panic in India, for instance. All those are cases where, in a way, groupthink panic and, and obviously we could go through history and we'd find similar similar cases well these have led to murders yeah. and we have many other examples and online bullying alone without any further threat can be as efficient um not to mention that to a certain extent it's a threat of democracy towards democracy and towards the justice system and instead of fixing things that need to be fixed we may be replacing them with something else altogether that in itself is a contradiction and especially if we think that this is for a power of good. I'm kind of, I keep wondering what we're signing up for, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I'd love to discuss flaws. There are many, many flaws. I can give you a list, but they should be discussed and they should be discussed openly without a threat, you know? Mm. And at the same time, actually, one thing I would like to pull attention to with technology is deepfakes, AI, bot armies. And these are all realistic aspects of how we can actually get into a situation where somebody is cancelled or called out without even being in any way in any way involved. For instance, it's possible 
to create very, very realistic deepfakes. Now, deepfakes are images, um, even sound and um, videos these days. I mean, they're very, very well known for um, revenge porn, for instance, the deepfakes are, where effectively people have put their ex's head, for instance, on a porn star's body. And oh, whoa. Oh my okay. God. Yeah. Oh, it's, this Ugh. is, this is bad. And now consider, for instance, I think there was a case in India where culture is somewhat restrictive anyway, especially towards women's sexuality. And now consider a person who had that done. This is terrible. It's just, this is social, social murder to a certain extent. Yeah. This is expulsion from society. And this happens even now. I do believe one of the first cases that I think there's a law against um, revenge porn now, I think in California and other, other places are trying to pick that up as well. And one of those cases had to do with a young woman whose ex created revenge porn and then sent it everywhere, including to her university. And because there was no rule, if I recall correctly, she had to, um, I think she had to take out rights, alter rights or whatever on, on the whole. So basically, in a way, she owns that and nobody can distribute it. But still, if you think about it, it pops up. And this was a long, long road for her to take, especially as, in a way, university kid. I've seen other cases where um, even Photoshop, very, very simple Photoshop was used. I think there was a young woman in Scotland. She got an email, anonymous. She didn't know. She still doesn't know, I think, who did it. And she was extorted for a lot of money. And she said, yeah, okay, fine. When, when it came out, I, I, didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't think that that looked like me convincing me, but I wasn't sure what anybody else would think. Mm. And now consider the technology is getting easier and easier. You can train AI to, you can create a deep fake account, so to speak. So you, it looks like you, it talks like you, it talks like anybody, for instance. And um, you can train your bot army, so an army of fake accounts to all interact and the AI to lead what you're posting. And you know, ultimately what you're looking at is narratives that can be, you know, I can do this, so to speak. I mean, not, not, not me personally, right? right? I wouldn't do that, but anybody theoretically with enough knowledge and knowledge is becoming very easy to get to can effectively create convincing enough personas, enough personas to actually count, and stories that incriminate someone. So what do we believe, right? What can we believe? And the problem with call-out and cancel culture is I can literally, I don't know, create a video of you eating a kitten, right? And spread it and say, and one beats kittens. <laughs> and there will be people who believe it. There will be people who believe it. And if I have enough bot accounts, I can make it viral. That's making me very nervous about posting this episode. I'm just me too. You know. <laughs> it can't yeah, be me terrified. I'm, I'm very nervous about it. I'm very, very nervous about it in a lot of ways. And I've read articles where people have been interviewed about, for instance, creating revenge porn or simply just porn by using someone's pictures off the internet. And the idea, this is a complete, how can I put this? Um, there's just no connection between, like you said before, this is a human being, right? It's like, oh, it's their fault. Why did they have pictures on the internet? But everybody has pictures on the internet. We're not talking naked yeah. pictures. We're talking, you have, I don't know, um, an Instagram account. Well, you have a selfie somewhere and they're going to use it and it's becoming more and more easy. I think Samsung was actually showing 
technology that can look at, for instance, even if you've got like just my side, um, the technology can turn it. That was, I think, CES this last year. So it's becoming more and more simplistic to just, I oh, love the screen, Lily. <laughs> She's back. The cat is back. Um, so basically, it's becoming very, very easy to create fakes from practically nothing. I can have a little smidgen and you're going to be able to create anything with it. So yeah. none of us are really safe. We should all be discussing this, but we're too busy believing everything, being angry, and canceling people. And I think also back to the whole thing is we just want a quiet life. Like we genuinely yes. just want to do our thing, keep our head down. And I get that some people's responses to that is if we don't say anything, then nothing will change. But the other side of it is life is short. You know, like, yeah. I don't want to spend my life worried that my face is going to be plastered somewhere yeah. by, and, and that's how autocracy works. You know, that's how it becomes successful in that mm -hmm. sense, is yeah. that um, people just want to live their life, a peaceful life. They want to keep their yeah. family safe, themselves safe. Yeah. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, they want to be able to sleep at night in whatever shape or form. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it just leads back to this whole thing of, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And this is the way in which. Absolutely. And for me, I mean, I devote about 18 hours a day currently, 18 hours a day to work, of which a lot has to do with human rights, with diversity at workplace, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a lot of hours of work. Yeah. And yes, after there we go. She managed to throw it. <laughs> if you can hear noise, she managed to throw the. She managed to throw the um the thing she was trying to get. Um. So yeah, basically, I want to be able to have that boring life after the eighteen hours at work. I want to be able to do that, and that's another thing. If you think about it, I live a very boring life in a lot of ways. It's just so boring sometimes. We've got our cats. We've got each other. And we don't even necessarily, I mean, if we go out for drinks, we are back before 10 p.m. Because we are, we feel old sometimes, you know, we feel tired, we feel old, we work a lot, so we just want to go to bed. And um, I keep my Instagram, for instance, public because to a certain extent, being an entrepreneur, I'm, especially as a woman, I'm somebody who should be creating a platform to show who I actually am. So people definitely know who I am, you know, lest I, lest I um, become the second visible whole, for instance. But it's also about representation. I put a lot of myself into that to show people who I am, why I speak the way I speak, why I think the way I think, why I'm passionate about the, the work I do. And that's, I mean, you know, you're going to have pictures of occasional outings, you're going to have pictures of food, you're going to have pictures of cats, although the cats mostly have their own Instagram. And that seems like a very boring, blameless life. But what is blameless, right? Mm. Blame is in the eyes of beholder, literally. Yeah. Blame is in the eyes of beholder. And if everything else fails, you can turn around and say, surely nobody can be this boring. Newsflash, yes, we can. <laughs> After 18 hours of work, Yes, we can. Mm -hmm. So really, that's my take on it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I have to say, uh, that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank Helleth again for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional information on today's very controversial topic will be available on our website <laughs> in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, then please remember to like, subscribe, and consider becoming a patron starting at one pound per month. It's support from our patrons that really helps to keep the show going. By becoming a patron, you get access to extra bonus content, videos of the show, patron-only interviews, workshops and much more to join just head over to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast otherwise that's it for now thanks for listening and have a great week